Welcome to Warriors Off Court, the San Francisco Chronicles NBA podcast. I'm your host, Warriors beat writer Connor Letourneau, and today I'm joined by sports columnists Scott Osler and Ann Killian to break down Golden State's Game 2 win over the Cavs and to look ahead to Game 3. So here we are in the bowels of the Quicken Loans Arena uh, on the eve of Game 3. Um, it's been, I think, a pretty eventful first couple games. Obviously, we already know everything that went down in Game 1. It was absolutely crazy. Um, game 2, I think, was a little bit more subdued, but definitely plenty to, to, to get into. Um, well, just kind of going back and looking back at, at Game 2 real quick, what was each of your, your thoughts on on that game? What were your biggest takeaways? Well, yeah, yeah. last year when we did this, uh, Charles Barkley came and crashed our party rudely, and we had to shoo him away, but he's not here this morning, so I think we're safe. Uh, my takeaway, one thing, it probably wasn't as easy as it looked, because in retrospect, it looks like I had a complete runaway start to finish, and they did lead wire to wire for the first time in the playoffs, but um, it could have gone, there were three or four times in the game where it could have gone haywire, it could have gone the other way, when the Cavs cut the lead to five or six or seven and uh, then the Warriors hit key shots. So they did all the right things. And, and one other thing that struck me is there were a lot of, uh, you know, the 50-50 balls where there's this kind of a scramble and everything, and the ball gets slapped around. It seems like the Warriors won about 75% of those, So and part of that is an element of luck. So I guess what I'm saying is um, because it looked easy, it doesn't mean that the Warriors are now on their way to a victorious four-game sweep automatically. Yeah, I mean, a half that game, they were only, it seemed like they were only up by four points, um, even in the third quarter. And I think that was something that stood out was that they did not have their amazing third quarter. Um, they, they, uh, they, it took, it took Perkins trying to trip Steph and Steph going crazy. I, we don't really know if that actually had anything to do with it, but that's the thing that stood out most to me was, was Steph, um, the way he exploded in the fourth quarter, uh, the dizzying off balance threes that he took the the way oracle reacts to him um just you know it's one of those steph makes a statement kind of games and um as i wrote about i mean i think he i think he really does want that mvp uh it's kind of the one thing that and an olympic medal is the one the the only two things missing from his resume so uh it'll be interesting to see if i recall correctly he hasn't played great in Quicken Loans, uh, hasn't shot great. So it's going to be inter- interesting to see how he plays here in Cleveland. Yeah, I think it would be remiss to not chat a little bit about Clay Thompson, uh, which, which Scott did a nice job of, of writing about a couple nights ago. But Clay Thompson is an absolute machine. I don't think a press conference goes by nowadays without without Steve Kerr saying that, saying that Clay Thompson is a machine. But, you know, we all were there the day before the game at media day where he was limping badly to his media scrum and he looked like he was in serious pain. And then to go out and, you know, have an efficient 20 points, play really solid defense, play 34 minutes, I believe it was. Um, it just is a testament to his wherewithal and his, his toughness. And I think, you know, he doesn't get enough credit for for being as tough as he is. A lot of people look at him kind of as a mild-mannered, nice guy. 
But anyone you talk to anyone on this team, and they'll tell you that he's as competitive as anyone. He's as tough as anyone, even though he may come from a privileged background. His dad was an NBA player. Um, what what did you think of what he showed that night? Well, you know, I didn't know how bad his, his ankle was and how bad he was hurting. None of us really know that. And from the outside, it, maybe there was the kind of supposition that, well, maybe it wasn't really that bad. He was limping the day before. It wasn't that bad. But we had an insider's perspective from Draymond Green after the game where he said he not only talked about looking at the ankle and seeing how badly swollen it was, but, you know, knowing about that kind of injury and, and you know, as, as another athlete, you know, just assuming that Clay was not going to play in that game. There's just no way. He saw the ankle. He saw Clay limping around. And let's be realistic. Clay is a wonderful guy, warrior. He's a tough guy and all that stuff. But he's just not going to play in that ankle. And Draymond was so convinced of that that even when Clay told him that the morning of the game, I'm going to play, Draymond said to himself, no, he's lying. So I don't, I don't know. We don't know how much it hurt him. We know he didn't take a pain shot. Uh, pain uh, inoculation to knock the pain down but it was a pretty heroic deal i think and the fact he come out and scored 20 points hit key shots at a lot of important junctures of the game uh, such an and it, when he does that it makes the rest of the team work makes durant and, and curry and all that stuff go so i think it was key and don't forget about his defense because if they didn't have him and they don't have andre that that's a huge hole and he that's the thing about Clay. He he works so hard on both ends of the court, and and uh, it was funny this morning. I I got up and I was listening to I don't know ESPN or <clears throat> first take something something on ESPN, and it was like, oh, Clay Thompson, he's really good. Why doesn't he get more publicity? Maybe he should go to a different team so he could be the guy. And it's like, oh yeah, you guys just discovered Clay. Hi, <laughs> uh, but it's true that he does get overlooked at times because. He's not the biggest name, and he loves it that way. You know, I just th- that's the thing I wanted to like, you know, shake the people on the ESPN set and say, "Don't you understand? This is Clay's perfect world. This is exactly the way he wants it." So, um, yeah, I think I think we're all even even those of us who cover the team and think Clay is the bomb and are completely amused by him at all times. We overlook him too because he is he's just you know Mister Reliable. I'm just going to make one more comment about Clay. Uh, kind of piggyback on what you said, Ann. That, you know, every guy in the league, to a certain extent, Steph Curry, there are a lot of people who don't like him. He shimmies too much. He's got the mouthpiece that bugs him and all that stuff. And every people don't like LeBron because he, he's LeBron. But I don't think there's anybody in the league, as far as I know, forgetting, forget, forget about the Bay Area, who doesn't like Clay. He just like the universal guy. You can't dislike the guy. It's, it's weird. And giving a shout out to a, a different organization, a different media outlet, um, Tim Kawakami wrote a uh, an oral history about um, the trip to the Hamptons. And the funniest part of that is all about Clay. How he at, at yeah, it was at the Athletic, and um, it was all about Clay and how he uh, got there a day early, and he was. <laughs> He was. I wish there was video of this. He he rented a bike and went to the beach, and then he he went and played tennis on grass courts. And somehow he got a hold of some tennis whites to play, you know, at the at the grass courted country club. And then he, when they got there, he was playing soccer like with the gardener. <laughs> he was having the greatest trip of all time. It is so funny. It's such a clay clay story. So, 
There are so many Clay stories. I mean, we could talk all day about him. He's just he's such an enigma in in a lot of ways, and he's one of the most genuine, uh, sincere people I think you'll ever meet. Um, but one of one of the other interesting things about Game Two, from my perspective, was it was the first time, honestly, in months where both Steph and KD had really good games. Now you can make the argument that. Um, that they had, they both had good games in Game Seven of the West Finals, but they both didn't really start to do much until the second half, and I felt like their rhythm wasn't totally on in that game the way it was last season. When you remember when they went sixteen and one in the playoffs, it was those two leading the way, and they were they had a really good on court rapport and really good understanding of what they needed to do to be on the same page. This season, it hasn't felt like it's been as smooth. Um, it, it, it feels like they haven't ever gotten into a real rhythm at all this season. I think that's due to a couple factors. Um, one of them being the fact that, you know, teams know a little bit better how to defend them and how to get, how to at least make them work. But most importantly, I think the injuries have been a huge factor. Uh, obviously Steph has been in and out of the lineup all season with injuries, uh, missed most of March and April. And what you saw, I think, when when Steph went out for for that extended amount of time toward the end of the regular season was, you know, the offense went back to flowing through KD, and KD got pretty comfortable with doing a lot of the things he did in Oklahoma City where he was forcing ISO situations and trying to beat his man off the dribble, and that was really the number number one option in the offense. And then when Steph came back and was kind of easing back into things, you know, they still were doing that. They still were going – to KD and force feeding those ISO situations. And that's really became an issue once they started facing an elite opponent in Houston where the the course kind of started to amplify of, hey, you're you're holding Steph back. Steph's healthy now. Let him do his thing. You're you're forcing these ISO situations when when you don't need to be. And uh and I think I mean I'm not inside his head, but I, I feel like that might have affected KD a little bit because he really started struggling around that time. Um, but I felt like that could have been a breakthrough in game two. I'm curious to see if they're able to build on that going forward in game three. Hey, yeah, and by the way, uh, to get a really good look at that, read Connor's story in sfchronicle.com or pick up the Chronicle. Uh, he, he deals with that subject today, and it's uh, I, to me it was really good. It really explained a lot. Um, one, one thing that kind of strikes me is you, you mentioned how when Steph was out, KD kind of took over. Last year that was kind of the opposite. KD got injured, and Steph was uh, had to take over the team and take over the offense, more or less. And when KD came back, I think the adjustment was a little bit smoother because I think, not to nitpick KD's game or anything like that, but I think Steph is a better adjuster or readjuster. You know, when the situation changes from A to B, uh, he's, he's quicker to know what needs to be done and to do it, where KD, you know, like you said, it took him a while to... to get away from that shoot first mentality when, when Steph came back. So um, that's not, doesn't make KD a bad guy. It just makes shows uh, to me, it's a tribute to Steph that he's able to make that kind of adjustment so quick. And, uh, but it is amazing that, that those two guys are so great. And you would think that some people, I guess would think <coughs> the chemistry would be automatic that just, they'd go show up on the court and they'd be able to flow together. But there's now this is an insight into how many working parts there are and how difficult it can be to, mesh all the superstars together yeah uh 
How do you think uh, Steve has been coaching through these playoffs and finals in terms of getting everyone on the same page, the different lineups he's been using? Uh, What's uh, the curve factor in all of this? It's an interesting question. Um, I always think... I always think it's difficult to really judge coaching because there's so much that goes into coaching. A lot of people want to just focus on, you know, the adjustments they make on the court, but there's so much beyond that, that that happens, especially with a team like this, when they're, they're trying to chase something for the fourth straight year. And there's, you know, a lot of mental fatigue that goes along with that. Um, Steve's gotten a decent amount of flack uh, in this postseason. I think a lot of people have harped on relatively minor things and said, Steve Kerr is showing that he's not a really elite coach and that, you know, he's just leaned on his talent and once adversity strikes, he he can't really handle the moment. He a lot of people said that he got out coached by Mike D'Antoni in the West Finals. Our our boss actually our columnist Al had a long column basically going in depth about how he thought Mike D'Antoni was a better coach than Steve Kerr. Um and um and I'm I can understand why people said that, but I think the fact that they're at this stage, they, they're everything's still in front of them. They're up two zero in the in the in the in the NBA Finals is a testament that of a testament to his ability to keep them together because they have there have been a lot of moments this season where they could have gone their separate ways. They could have crumbled, you know, when Steph got injured, you know, when they. They, you know, weren't playing the way they needed to earlier in the playoffs. There was obviously that moment in Game Seven of 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 the West Finals that Ann wrote about, where they they all kind of knew that this is we could splinter right here and we could we could fall apart and our season our season could be over tonight. But Steve has done a nice job of of keeping them together, and I think you I think a lot of people have given him flack about his rotations the fact that he hasn't been able to really settle in on a a real cohesive rotation especially in these playoffs and he's still making changes to the starting lineup and that sort of thing but I honestly think that's more of a byproduct of the fact that this is just an uneven roster I don't I don't think that's a Steve Kerr problem I think he's trying to do the best he can with a roster that has flaws and a lot of people don't want to admit that the Warriors roster could have flaws but I think we've seen especially in those West Finals that they need to make some real changes in the offseason, especially to that bench. Uh, they need they need to bring in some more wing players. Uh, they need to you know let some of those centers go go their separate ways. So overall, I think Steve's done a nice job. What what have you thought? Well, for one thing, you know people that criticize him <clears throat> for making lineup changes and not settling on on one lineup and not we can say this that once you get to the finals, that's certainly no time to be screwing around with the, the starting lineup or anything like that, like, say, putting Andre Iguodala in the starting lineup instead of Andrew Bogut. You certainly wouldn't want to do anything stupid like that, so <laughs> we know Curve's not going to be that dumb. But um, a lot of – we understand how important strategy is in the NBA. Steve Kerr came in and he remade the offense and, it, and it basically remade the team, and to simplify. Um, but there's such a strong uh, psychological component to coaching in the NBA – you know, these, it's not babysitting. It's, it's knowing how to keep all these guys together, especially when you've got a superstar team with all these f- fabulous guys and, and some egos involved and all that stuff. Knowing how to keep all that together, that's, that's a, a great art. And I, th- I don't know if anybody's better than Kerr at that. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I think from the psychological, emotional standpoint, he's a genius. Uh, and the fact that he's 
been through all this is uh, as a player, now as a coach four times, uh, just the guys trust him. They they do want to hear what he says. I thought it was really interesting when Kevin uh, Durant finally was asked about that moment that was captured during the Western Conference Finals when when Kerr is uh, talking to him and, and you can hear what, that he's saying something about, you know, what Jordan would do. And Durant was, I think people thought, based on body language, that Durant was resentful of that. Um, there was a lot of discussion about whether it was inappropriate. Uh, Durant did walk away at the end of it, but that was because the timeout was over <laughs> and he was going back on the court to play basketball. Uh, but but Durant was asked directly about that a couple days ago, and he, he was extremely complimentary and said, you know, that he loves hearing those stories and loves it when Kerr, who, you know, played with the legend, can tell him stories about what the legend Jordan was doing in those, in those circum- same circumstances. So I think he... Uh, I think Kerr is super aware that that he's of a different generation. He doesn't want to trot those stories out too often, but he knows when to use them, and he knows. Uh, I think he knows all the right buttons to push. Um, I think it's going to be interesting going forward, though, because we saw how what a challenge this team had this year. And if they if they win this thing again, I I mean they're going to be really bored next year. I mean it's 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 just hard to imagine how you can keep this thing going because we've seen it with other teams. I remember when George Seifert uh, resigned, quote unquote, from the 49ers, you know, there was, he was the one who said, you know, after about 10 years or so, guys get sick of hearing your voice. And I think it might be shorter in the NBA because there are just fewer people involved. So the voices are that much more amplified. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how long, uh, how long this run goes. You definitely, uh, but you know, to, to get to the off season, to get to those important questions with with what they're going to do to the roster, they 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 have at least a couple more games to play. They're obviously here in Cleveland with the chance to sweep. Um, you know, the the thing that a lot of people are going to probably bring up today, once we get to media availability and and people start writing their stories, is, hey, Cavs, you guys did this a couple years ago. You're down 0-2. You came back. You won in seven games. You can do it. It can happen. You've done it before, right? You hold on to take some solace in, in history. Um, do you do you think that anything should be made of that? Do you think that that's a relevant storyline today? Uh, obviously, this Cavs team is extremely different. They're very different than they were in December, much less in 2016. Um, and this Warriors team is a bit different. They have this guy named Kevin Durant now. Um so do you think that that's something that should even be brought up today? Oh, yeah, I definitely do. I think uh, if, there's, if you pulled the, the Warriors and asked them the one thing they're ashamed of over the last four years, there's probably only one thing, and it would be blowing a 3-1 to one lead to Cleveland. Um, that's, that's something you just never live down, you know. That's, that's the kind of thing LeBron throws birthday parties to celebrate and everything. Um, so I think that's definitely on their mind. In fact, I was thinking today that let's say they win – Tonight, uh, tomorrow night, and go up three nothing. Now they're in really bad shape because can you imagine the pressure on of not wanting to be the first team in NBA history that ever blew a three to nothing lead in the finals? That would be the most epic, colossal, pratfall embarrassment in history. So um, I think they're they're keenly aware of that and they are keenly tuned up to avoid it, avoid it. 
Well, not just their own history, but I mean, the Cavsbury Town to Boston, two to nothing, uh, and and so uh, the the Cavaliers. We we mock their roster, uh, but I think Lou has done a better job than he gets any credit for. Uh, and LeBron is LeBron, and he can take over a game, as we've seen. So I, 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 I think that I wouldn't be at all surprised if – I know the Warriors would like to sweep. That's something they haven't done. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if they – uh, lose one of these two games here in Cleveland. I, this is a hard arena to play in. Uh, they have a great home crowd. LeBron may be playing his last two games in the in the city uh, ever, and um, there's going to be a lot of emotion. It's going to be super highly charged, and I think uh, I I think Cleveland is perfectly capable of of t- winning one or maybe both these games at home. Oh, just a quick uh, stat: in the playoffs, the Warriors are four and four on the road, so. It's kind of a sobering thought. And the Cavs are very good at home. I don't have I don't have the numbers in front of me. Yeah, I think they've won eight in a row at home, and the, and they were great in the regular season at home. Um, so it, it'll be interesting. Um, I've I've said from the start if if the Cavs are going to get a game or two, it's probably going to be in Cleveland, which is why Game One was could have potentially been such a big deal because that would have changed the whole tone of everything because then they go back to Cleveland, series tie one-on-one. We know what they can do in Cleveland. Who knows what's going to happen from there. But um, kind of kind of looking uh, looking forward to, to game three, what are, you, what are the biggest changes you think the, the, the Warriors need to make or what do you, you want to see from them tomorrow night? Um, they did a lot of things well in game two. Is there anything they can do better? Well, I don't know if they can do anything better. Um, the one thing they want to do is make sure they don't – it's easy to say, and obvious, this is obvious, but make sure they don't get behind early. They did this especially towards the end of the season when they were in their funk. But they also had a habit of doing that, just having lousy first quarters and getting behind by 6, 8, 12 points. And I think that would be really dangerous if they did that here. And um, one other thing that springs to mind is, is there's talk about how – how important it is to change the looks on LeBron, the defensive looks on, on him. You can't just, once you come up with something that's halfway successful for a quarter or two or a half or a game, you can't stay with that because LeBron's too smart. He, he'll pick it apart. So um, I'm sure Steve Kerr is working right now in his room devising more, more defenses, so they're going to have to throw more stuff at him, at LeBron. Yeah, and the other thing uh, I'm interested to see is, uh, as we mentioned earlier, just how Steph plays here. Because uh, I have to go back and look at the numbers, but I don't, I don't think he's played particularly well in this building uh, in the playoffs. So uh, it's it's going to be. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be interesting. The the turnovers um, were they were really good in game two about keeping their turnovers down, and that is to me just the thing that it makes me crazy when this team throws the ball around the way it often does. It's just. It seems so reckless and so unnecessary. I know they play up tempo. I know that they, uh, you know, ball movement is important. So they're going to have some turnovers, but some of them in the playoffs this year have just been insanely stupid. So that's that's something I want to watch for. I expect the the Cavs aren't going to hold anything back at this point. I expect them to try to out tough the Warriors. If you look back at you know, 2016, one thing that really worked for the Cavs was slowing down the pace and really, you know, being physical with them and, and 
you know, that's kind of been a knock, fair or not, on this Warriors team is they're they're soft at, at times. They're they're not as tough. They they don't stand up in those those moments where they're when they're they're pushed to the brink. And so I I can expect that to happen tomorrow night. And the big thing is for the Warriors to not back down from that and to embrace that and to you know give that back to the Cavs. And I think we talk so much about the Warriors defense on on LeBron and and the reality is even if you play great defense which I actually thought the Warriors played pretty good defense on LeBron in game two he's still gonna have probably a triple double he's still gonna have probably at least 30 points he's still gonna be LeBron what I think is an underrated part of this series is the Warriors ability to take out those complimentary options to take out the Kyle Corvers the J.R. Smiths obviously Kevin Love uh, to take out those guys because as cliche as it is this is a team sport, and even if LeBron gets 50 points, they can still lose a game, as we saw in game one. So I actually think the Warriors have done a really nice job on putting hands on shooters because for them, for the Cavs to have a serious shot in this series, they need to really start – they need to really get going from beyond the arc, and they need Kyle Korver to get going. They need J.R. Smith to get going, and those guys haven't been able to do that. So I think if the Warriors can continue to do that, that's going to put them – in a great position going forward as well. So, um, all that being said, um, what's what's kind of your your early prediction for tomorrow night? Um, I'm predicting a, a battle. I'm predicting uh, the last game. The Warriors kind of set the tone early, and they kind of maintained it. Like I said, they didn't dominate. They didn't totally run away with it until the end. But um, I think it's going to be much closer and tougher. Uh, and like Ann keeps saying, and I and I, I keep flashing back through my mental Rolodex to think of games where Steph has really gone off here at Quicken Loans Arena, and I don't remember any. It just seems like a, a tough building for him for some reason. And uh, so I, I just see a, a very contentious, you know, it's a wild arena. I see a very contentious, uh, uh, close, maybe not artistic, but uh, a battle. Uh, I have felt all along this was going to go five games and uh, s- assumed that Cleveland would win one of the games here. So I'm going to say that the Warriors lose, lose tomorrow night. I'm going to say game three is a, an L for the Warriors based on what we were talking about. They, the, Cleveland is desperate. Uh, they, their backs are against the wall. There's going to be a lot of emotion in the arena. Uh, you know, people love LeBron. Uh, he 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 takes up an entire wall outside on a building right right next door. Uh, so I think it's it's going to be a, a charged atmosphere, and um, and I think Cleveland's going to come away with a win. Oh, and, and backing that up, remember when Draymond said during the last series, I think he said we we do one of those games every series where they just show up asleep. So I guess his pregame pep talk will be forget what I said. We do we don't do one of those every series, but we'll see. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a good game tomorrow for all the reasons you guys have just mentioned. Um, I still see the Warriors pulling it out, but I think it'll be really close. I could just maybe see it going overtime. I could see it being a two or three point game. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of those things where the Warriors are trailing, entering the fourth, and then have enough oomph down the stretch to, to pull it out, just because they're a lot deeper than the Warrior than the Cavs. Obviously, the Warriors get a lot of flack for their bench this season, but. I mean, if you look at the Cavs and what they have beyond Kevin Love and LeBron, they don't—they don't have much. So, so I, I see the Warriors pulling it out, but um, I wouldn't be shocked if if the Cavs got this one. It's going to be fun. 
uh, I think that that's all we have for you guys today. Uh, definitely stay locked and loaded at sfchronicle.com. Scott, Ann, and I will be here uh, through Friday giving you all the coverage you guys need. So uh, stay with us. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is Thank You for Playing by Ryan Little, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more Warriors coverage, you can follow us on Twitter at con underscore cron and at Scott Osler and at Ann Killian. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. Also, follow us on iTunes, and if you have some time, give us some feedback.